Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, I am joined by husband Jeff as we discuss the very, I don't want to say curious, but extremely mysterious and unsolved death of one of America's first sweethearts, one of America's first female icons, Hollywood royalty, just this beautiful woman in general. I am, of course, referring to Natalie Wood. Now, yesterday, July 20th, would have been her birthday. And had she not died unexpectedly and mysteriously on a cold, rainy night in November of 1981, she does not live to see 84. So, darling, are you familiar with Miss Natalie Wood? Nope. I actually think you've seen her in a few movies. Probably. But you may not realize you've seen her. Probably. Okay. Now, in case you aren't aware, as I said before, her death has been considered to be an unsolved mystery because of all the lingering questions, the gaps in the information that's been provided, and how the information that's been provided does not match the evidence to confirm the information that's been provided. And it, this is unfortunate because she was a very much beloved American icon. She was considered to be Hollywood royalty. And, I mean, she had to some extent, and we're going to actually kind of go into how she just really had a very interesting life. And when it comes to celebrities and People of that stature, you know, we feel like we know them because of the characters that they play, that the characters that are, are relatable to us. And because of that, we think, you know, we know them. But in reality, I have to say, there were so many things in all of the articles that I read and watching the many YouTube videos and even the documentary that her daughter had co-produced. I was absolutely amazed to her life and everything that it encompassed. So with what would have been her birthday that she lived this particular weekend, we're going to touch base on the mystery, the conflict, the gaps, and why it's still unresolved to a lot of people, including the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. So she was actually born Natalia Zakarenko on July 20th, 1938. She was of Russian and Ukrainian descent. Her parents, Maria and Nicholas, had fled Russia and arrived in San Francisco, California, 
That's where they met and married. Natalia had an older half-sister named Olga, and her parents would go on to have a younger sister by the name of Lana. From San Francisco, the family moves to Santa Rosa, which is north, northern California. While there, when Natalie was still fairly young, Maria, the mom, hears of a casting call for a young girl to just have this one moment. The child is required to cry at the fact that she dropped her ice cream cone. So Maria takes Natalie for this casting call, and Natalie lands the very small part in the movie Happy Land. So this is her first official movie. I don't even think she gets credit for this. How can she not? I thought that was like, you had to. I'm not even sure you actually see her. Mm-hmm. I have not seen this particular movie. And again, it's like a five-second blip. She drops the ice cream and she starts crying over it. Now, the director is a man by the name of Irving Pitchell. And he remembers Natalie when he starts looking to cast another young girl in his movie, Tomorrow is Forever, in 1943. And this is essentially the beginning of her career, though this role is small, but it's longer than than her previous movie gig. And she goes on to star with Orson Welles, which is an actual major player in the movies. And she's pursuing this. At the next role that she takes on is actually the role of Jean Tierney's daughter in a personal favorite movie of mine called The Ghost in Mrs. Muir. And she's so young, and but she's just so spot on. But it's her next major movie that basically cements Natalie as this childhood star in Hawaii. Not Hawaii, in in Hawaii, in Hollywood, and I'm of course referring to her role as Susan Walker, the young lady who did not believe in Christmas until there was a miracle on 34th Street in 1947, co-starring a personal favorite actress of mine, Maureen O'Hara. So you've seen this movie, yes? I might have saw it when I was a kid, but I don't remember. It's the movie where the mother works for Macy's. And she hires an actor, what she thinks is an actor, to play Santa Claus. And it turns out she hires the real Santa Claus. And Susan Walker, Natalie's role, she's the daughter. And she's like, you're not the real Santa Claus. And he's like, I am the real Santa Claus. And because he believes he's the real Santa Claus, he gets, like, arrested. And he gets put on trial because they think he's crazy and not to give anything away but the real hero in the story is the united states postal service so go postal service anywho (laughs) but you this movie sounds familiar yes vaguely well it's predominantly seen and viewed by everybody around christmas time as it's considered Uh, yeah i think my mom had us watch it when i was a kid once now Interestingly enough, at the age of 10, about this time, she actually runs into her future husband, Robert Wagner, because she shares the story of how her and her mother were walking down the hall of a movie studio, and they pass Robert Wagner, and she remembers telling her mom that she wished she could grow up and marry that man, and so she's, so Robert is actually eight years her senior, and... She's 10, so she sees him when he's 18, and she's like, ah, that's the guy. 
even before anything happens. But she would go on to have more roles as a young girl, as a young teenager, kind of playing to her youthfulness. But as she gets older, she, of course, wants more roles of substance, more defining roles. And like everybody else, doesn't want to be, you know, continuously put into this hole of just this little girl. She wants to expand her horizons, which I totally get. But things kind of go in a direction that I just, I, I was a little taken back, but some of the articles that I read in terms of her kind of looking for the older roles or, you know, wanting to step out of this pigeonhole that she's been put into as a young woman with this innocenceness, I have read a few articles where at the behest of her mom, she starts branching out and meeting older men in their homes and these older men being very important people in Hollywood. For instance, I read an article that at the age of 15, she was doing a lot of quote-unquote singing lessons with Frank Sinatra, according to a former employee who wrote the book My Life with Frank Sinatra, which was a memoir by George Jacobs, who, like I said, worked for him for 15 years, and we're talking from 1953 to 1968. He actually talks about how this young lady who was 15 at the time would come over and Frank Sinatra would give her quote unquote singing lessons in private and how Frank would be like, George, you got to go because I don't need you to kind of be here for any of this. And when it came to like the role of Judy in the movie rebel without a cause, I, even read that, that she even goes to visit the director kind of to prove to him that she could be a bad girl, a naughty girl, which the role of Judy was calling for. And I even read that after a few screen tests, they become involved and in a way that's not good. But she does actually land the part of Judy and she gains herself her first Oscar nomination. And, you know, looking back, if you look at the three major players in the movie Rebel Without a Cause, have you seen this movie? I don't think so. I'm Maybe. Actually a little it's got James Dean and Salmino. I might have seen it. In the movie, it, it's, it's spearheaded by three major actors. James Dean, which catapults him. Natalie Wood, which catapults her, and Sal Mino. And the sad part is, is that all three of them are killed. James Dean will die in a in a very terrible car accident because someone made a left turn while he was driving down the road. Sal gets stabbed to death in a botched like burglary or robbery. He was he got out of his car and was walking to his apartment and got stabbed. And then Natalie Wood dies all these years later in this scenario that we're going to delve further into. So I, it just, it kind of actually makes me sad knowing yeah. their fates. Yeah. So anywho, she goes through a series of not so good movies. And on her 18th birthday, July 20th, 1956, she goes out on a studio arranged date with none other than Robert Wagner. And 
I want to see Robert took her to a place called Romanoff's, which was one of Hollywood's glamorous restaurants of the day. They hit it off. They fall in love. And they get married about a year and a half later on December 28th, 1957 in Scottsdale, Arizona. But and the pressures of Hollywood and the studios wanting to make them kind of like the it couple, I think puts an unfair scenario and, and stress and added expectations on the marriage. And I mean, they were hounded by the press they were, you know, held up. They had these unrealistic expectations that wouldn't normally befall regular married people. Right. And I think it kind of contributed to a lot of issues that they were having. And But again, I mean, everyone has issues. I mean, being married is the issue. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Second that. But... About three and a half years into the marriage, Natalie comes home unexpectedly from working. And it has been said by a few sources that she finds her husband in bed with another person. And one specific person is actually Natalie's sister, Lana. Lana says it wasn't just anyone Robert was in bed with. But the butler, a man named Cavendish, who was in Robert's employment even before they were married, and supposedly, allegedly, as the panda would say, she caught them like in mid-act. She flips out. She leaves the house. She goes to her parents' house, locks herself in her former bedroom, swallows some pills, and goes into a, a coma. I mean, she's just... Obviously distraught. Now, she obviously recovers because she goes on. And it would later be said that the cause of their first divorce is because of an affair that she actually has with Warren Beatty, whom she co-starred in what would be kind of like her comeback movie, Splendor in the Grass, during its 1961 production. So... Wait, you said first divorce? So they were married and divorced more than once? Well, we'll get to that. I think in a lot of the articles that I read that she didn't really want to out anybody. And so it just kind of seemed like the timing of their breakup and her association with Warren Beatty kind of just people just assumed that that was the reason. Either way... Robert heads to Europe, he settles in Rome, and he stays there for approximately three years. In 1963, he ties the knot with a woman by the name of Marion Marshall Donan, who was an actress, and a year later, this married couple have a daughter named Katie. They continue, they live their lives, but in 1971, they get a divorce. As for Natalie, Natalie actually begins publicly dating Warren Beatty. And then she starts officially dating Frank Sinatra. She even dates David Nevin Jr., whom we actually know his dad was David Nevin, who was kind of like this glamorous Hollywood royalty himself. Michael Caine, the future Alfred 
of Batman. And in 1963, she meets and marries a gentleman by the name of Richard Gregson. After a few years, Natalie gives birth to a daughter whom she names Natasha on September 29, 1970. However, Gregson decides to have an affair with Natalie's personal secretary. And when Natalie finds out, the marriage is over. By now, Robert's back in America, hitting up Hollywood, and he's actually getting ready to propose to Frank Sinatra's daughter. I mean, talk about this small, tight circle. And per the article I read, he even, like, purchased a ring for her. However, and I did, like I said earlier, took the time to watch her daughter's, Natasha's HBO documentary. According to Natasha's documentary, Robert shares how... They see each other at a party. It was kind of like they were talking and he asked to take her home and things kind of really started moving from there. But I also did read that they were corresponding on the phone previously. It sounded like maybe they kind of had still some sort of communication, but at this particular party, that's when things kind of started moving in a direction that would lead to their second marriage, which happens... Because they realize that they're still in love and they want to go ahead and give it a second go. So they borrow a yacht by the name of Ramblin' and Rose for their second wedding. And on July 16, 1972, with just a small party of guests on the Ramblin' Rose for their ceremony, right off the shores of Malibu, they exchange wedding vows for the second time. I then read that they go and they honeymoon in Catalina Island, which to me is kind of foreshadowing because this is the place where her mysterious death takes place. So they're married, and in March of 1974, they have a daughter together by the name of Courtney. In 1975, they purchased a boat called the Challenger, but they weren't happy with the name. And supposedly, Natalie loved a poem by Wadsworth that contained the word Splendor, which I just think. So they agreed to rename this yacht new to them Splendor. And as it is, apparently it's very bad luck to change the the name of a boat. Like, super bad juju. And, I mean, Catalina Island, now we got the boat. And the boat, by the way, is either 55 or 60 feet long. So it's big, but not too big. And essentially what we're doing is we're setting up what is going to happen next. Now, they're in love. They're happy. But as time goes on, you know, they have their ups and downs in their, in their, in their careers. And they're doing their best to be this couple. And it sounds like, per the documentary even though I do have some criticism of the documentary, it did sound like that they were both really working to be a family. Wagner had some stepchildren that he brought into the marriage, and it sounded like, you know, Natalie did her best to incorporate the children and his other daughter, you know, and it sounded like Wagner did the same with Natasha. So it did sound like, per this documentary, that they did work to be a whole family, which is great. Yeah. But whereas it kind of seemed like his career started taking off again, because it's kind of like pits and valleys. 
you know, doing great, not doing so great, doing great, not doing so great. And then whereas hers was not doing as well as maybe previously, he actually gets a hit show called Heart to Heart. And the chemistry between him and his co-star, Stephanie Powers, has the audience just raving. Do you, did you, were no, you too I don't young? I think so. Probably. I don't know. When was it out? I don't know if it was late 70s, but definitely early, early 80s. It might have been like three or four. Really? Yeah. Born in 77. Really? Yeah. Mm, okay. When were you born? Ugh, those are bad words. Okay. Anywho. And <laughs> there's even, I read an article where there's even a horrible moment. And it's, it's horrible because it, it wasn't, it, uh, let me just share. Natalie brings the kids to the set of Heart to Heart and they walk in just as Robert is shooting a lovemaking scene with Stephanie. So right there in front of the kids and even though I mean, he's just doing his job with Natalie hearing how everyone's raving about this chemistry between him and his co-star and her not kind of having maybe the career she wanted just kind of added to, I think, uh, an unfortunate situation where it was just really not a good moment. Yeah, I can imagine. Can you? Oh, yeah. You could imagine if I was an actress? and. Yep, sure. If you were making love to some guy because that's your job, well, okay, whatever. You're not having sex on I mean, you're not really having sex. I know it's, just, it's your job, whatever. Mm. You wouldn't get jealous? You're not. He's not. No. Really? No. What if it was Tom Hardy? Yeah, it doesn't matter. You don't know who, who Tom is. Hardy is? Yeah, I know who he is. It doesn't matter who he is. He was the baker. He was the baker. Well, anywho, so Natalie's trying to get her work up there, and she ends up taking a role in a movie called Brainstorm, where she's a scientist married to none other than Christopher Walken. Now, rumors start spreading that more than role play is going on between them. Like, they're super flirty, but there wasn't a whole lot of consensus that anything of an actual affair was going on. It was just, like, an overall impression. You know, it wasn't like people caught them, or it wasn't like they were... They were there were gaps in their, you know, their times, or... It was just an impression. Right. But part of the impression or the overall thought was that Natalie was pretty, pretty impressed with Watkins. Like maybe a little smitten. Maybe, yeah, yes. And maybe part of it had to do with the fact that she, you know here her husband has this amazing chemistry with his coworker, and. She herself is just trying to... But that chemistry could be totally made up. That's the... Well, it is. The part of the job. Right, right. Make it believable, right? They have to sell the sitcom. That's what acting sitcom. is. Right. Acting is, right? You've you got to make them believe your character. They could have hated each other in real life. Right, but on screen, yeah. they have to show that there's something there. Right. For the audience. Right. Okay. Now... Either way, Brainstorm actually primarily gets filmed 
on the East Coast. And this is kind of an interesting scenario because, like I said before, this situation where they worked as a cohesive family, it was my understanding that when one was working, the other was home so that the kids kind of had some type of balance and parent there. So they would kind of offset each other. But with her filming this movie and him doing heart to heart, both parents were out of the home. But like I said, the primary filming took place on the East Coast. So when they came back to L.A. in the fall of 1981, they came back to kind of just do the final touches of the film. And that's when this scenario of her unexplainable it's not unexplainable it's just the circumstances are very questionable yeah and that's when this questionable death happens so let's get to it because i and i i've given you know the woman was 43 when she died i've only given a approximately 30 minutes of her life and there was so much information that I found and some of it I just was like oh my god so after doing the Thanksgiving dinner with the family and friends they decided to to go to Catalina Island via the boat and they invite a variety of friends who all decline with the exception of Christopher Walken and one of the reasons or some of the people, not all of them, who declined was because this particular weekend was a very stormy, wet, rainy weekend. So it wasn't necessarily going to be jump in the ocean, fun in the sun kind of a scenario. It's November. It's fall. And this is something we have to absolutely keep in mind for what happens next. So like I said before, they head out on Friday. Black, like Black Friday. I don't know if it was Black Friday in 1981, but it's certainly Black Friday now. The Splendor departs Marina Del Rey, and they get to the island, and pretty much from the moment they get there, a series of not unfortunate events, but just, I think, an accumulation of a buildup. Because everything unfolds, and... It basically starts that Friday night. There are four people on the boat. Natalie, Robert, Christopher, and a man by the name of Dennis Danvern, who is kind of like the captain, the maintenance guy, the guy in charge of the care and maintenance of the boat. And, I mean, he's familiar with all the ins and outs of the Splendor. They rely on him to maintain it. Once they reach the island... There is an argument between Natalie and Robert. Robert wants to move the boat, but Natalie felt that it was too dangerous to move the boat because of the storm. And a huge argument ensues. And Natalie, and I can only speculate, you know, if you and I were to have an argument in front of my friend, I would be mega embarrassed. But she tells Dennis, hey, I'm not going to stay here. Get the dinghy, the which was a Zodiac, a rubber dinghy, called the Prince Valiant, and she and Dennis go to shore. 
Once they get to the shore, she gets a hotel room. And again, with all the conflicting information, I read that she and Dennis shared a room, but it was like she, it was just a simple, there was nothing beyond that. And then I also read that they got their own rooms. They had their own space. But, I mean, nothing's going on between her and Dennis. That's my point. Either way, in the interview that Robert gives in his stepdaughter's documentary released in 2020, he says that they couldn't get the ship settled because of the mornings. And it was a stormy night, and it was too hard for Natalie to be on the boat. So he doesn't even acknowledge that there was an argument between them. So here we have the beginnings of conflicting statements. And to make matters worse, Dennis, when this, when, when, when he starts getting questioned and stuff, he doesn't come out right with what really happened, which does not help because, you know, the police, to some degree, find out more. So they know that conflicting information is happening because the the police will later come to find out that he and Dennis or he and Natalie spent the night in the hotel, Hotel Avion. And so, I mean, already they know that Dennis is not being honest with them. Now, in the morning, Natalie returns to the boat with Dennis. And after talking to Watkins, she agrees to stay through the weekend and is like, okay, we'll just, you know, let last night kind of go. And she even agrees to let Robert move the boat to another part of the island, and a section that's a little bit more isolated. Once settled, Robert goes down for like a nap. And when he gets up, he discovers that both Natalie and Christopher are gone. They had gone into town, and Robert and Dennis joined them at Doug Harbor's Reef Restaurant. Now, I read an account of how Natalie and Christopher were being pretty obvious in flirtation, even to the point where they were basically ignoring Robert standing there. And everybody's drinking. It just becomes this foursome party, and alcohol starts getting involved, which I think contributes to overall what happens next. In fact, they the party themselves actually get a little out of hand they do this weird toast i think and they start smashing all the the glasses on the table and they kind of make the scene but they're drunk and when they leave don Whitting, the night manager of the restaurant even calls the harbor master to let them know that the party has been drinking and he's concerned that they may not make it back to the boat safe and sound and he does this about 10 30 they leave the restaurant about 10 30 and now this is where timelines become very important so, like I said, everyone has different versions of what happens next. Well, they're all drunk, so they Correct. don't remember. But I'm going to share Robert's version first. Once they get back to the boat, Robert says he and Watkins get into an argument over Christopher commenting on Natalie Wood, just making this comment that greatly upset Robert. And he responds with something like, stay out of her life, because he's, He's upset. He's upset about what Watkins has said. So Robert then says Natalie goes to their room to get ready for bed. And he and Watkins continue to talk. And he's still, he's obviously still upset because he then smashes the wine bottle. And at that point, Watkins goes out up onto the deck 
and Robert follows him, telling him, you know, to stay out of it. And Robert says that, you know, being out there maybe in the night air calms him down. He gets calmed down. And the two men then go back down below, talk a little bit more before, actually before both of them retire for the night. Robert then goes to their room and he says that's when he notices she's not there and he can't find her. And then he also says that's when he realizes that the dinghy is missing as well. So 11.05, he tells Dennis that she's missing. Again, this is all primarily Robert's version. Again, this is a 55 or 60-foot boat. You're on a little island. I don't understand why, what happens next. Two hours or so later, Robert decides to put a call into the harbor master to let them know what's going on. So like at 1 o'clock in the morning? One thirty. Then Did they have cell phones? How did he call? Radio? My assumption is a radio phone, yes. Then at 3.30 a.m., a call is put out to the Coast Guard, and it's raining and storming. Unfortunately, at 7.54, her lifeless body is found one mile from the Splendor, floating near Blue Cavern Point, and the dinghy is relatively close by. When they find her, she is wearing a red heavy jacket, a flannel nightgown, and argyle socks. That's it. That's all she's wearing. They notice that foam is coming out of her mouth, and when they pick her up, her jacket falls off of her, this heavy jacket. And in fact, I think they even described it kind of floating away, and then they had to go retrieve it. And like I said, the dinghy itself is relatively close by. Let's talk about the dinghy. The dinghy, they find scratches on the side, but they do not, in the original autopsy, that's conducted. They do not take samples from underneath her nails. And that's important. On the dinghy, like I said, they find the scratches. They find that the ignition is off. That the gear of the dinghy is set in neutral. The oars to the dinghy are locked up. And the way this they find it basically gives law enforcement the impression that the dinghy wasn't even used. Now, her body gets taken to the L.A. coroner's office while Robert and Christopher get questioned, and once they get questioned, they actually end up leaving the island via police helicopter. And according to Dennis, and this is one thing I'll say, according to Dennis, Robert asks him to go and identify Natalie, his wife's body. Maybe so, he just didn't want to. He didn't think he could handle it. Now, later on, Dennis will say, and I quote this, Robert asked me if I would den- identify her body because he didn't want to. It was the eeriest feeling I've ever had in my life to look at her lying there lifeless. It was so disturbing. Now, all three men... Tell the original detective, a, a gentleman by the name of Dwayne Resser, that they all thought Natalie had taken the dinghy ashore. And the detective actually gives a interview in 2011 stating that he believed them. 
We're talking Christopher. We're talking Robert. We're talking Dennis. And he even says that he didn't doubt what Ragnar was telling him. What uh, Christopher basically tells him the same story. And that they all assumed that she just got in the dinghy and went to shore. Now, the detective says, I did see the shattered glass. And when I asked Robert, he said that it happened sometime during the traveling because of the rough seas. And the detective says, I have no reason to question him further. And the detective even goes on to say, and I'm quoting him from his interview. When I interviewed Robert Wagner, there was no indication of any jealousy, no problems. There were no signs of foul play in my mind. But again, things that will come out later will conflict with what gets said now. But the main source of the information, and the detective is saying it, when I interviewed Wagner, when I interviewed Robert, this is what he said. So her body gets found on that Sunday, November 29th. On November 30th, the chief medical examiner for the L.A. County Coroner's Office announces, his name is Thomas Naguchi, announces that she dies of accidental drowning. He does indicate that there are superficial bruises on her body, but he says it's likely from falling in the water. And the scratch marks on the yacht's dinghy, again, they called it the Prince Valiant, was evidence of her attempting to climb on board before succumbing to exhaustion, quote-unquote. But again, they did not take samples of her fingernails to confirm that. They just said, oh, there's scratches, and she's dead in the water, so there you go. We're going to get into, in the next segment, because I'm simplifying this for a reason. I'm showing you what was done, who said what, because in the next part two... We're going to discuss the conflicting and other side and evidence that comes to light. So Noguchi says it's a tragic accidental drowning. And on December 3rd, 1981, they bury Natalie in the Westwood Cemetery. Her funeral is star-studded. Everyone's there. And even Wagner's there. Robert's there. He's upset. He Kisses her coffin goodbye. But to me, one of the most curious parts is she gets buried with a pair of earrings one of her daughter chooses for her. But she also gets buried with a full-length fox fur coat that Robert bought for her but didn't give it to her. So she gets buried in this body-length fur coat that she didn't even know existed. Yeah. And two weeks later, after the actress's death on December 11th, the case gets officially closed. But this is just the beginning because we already have withheld information. Conflicting information is happening. The detective has one version. And more importantly, no one is asking real questions. For example, guys... One of the first things I said, this is a stormy weekend. In fact, I want to say I even read that she didn't really even know how to get the dinghy off of the boat. I heard that in one of your one of your videos you were watching. Right. They said the same thing. She's already told the maintenance guy, get the dinghy, we're going to shore. 
why would she do that if she has a man who's paid to maintain and take care of these things for her? Why would, why would she do this? In her pajamas. And it's my understanding well, she wasn't wearing any undergarments. You said she was drunk, right? Yes. People do stupid things when they're drunk. So she's not even properly dressed. It was reported she didn't even know how to get it off the boat. But somehow all of them thought that she decided to go ashore. The whole thing sounds kind of fishy. Yes. I mean, I don't know. So we're going to go further into the mystery and discuss the conflicting statements that later get made and discuss the conflicting physical evidence that is present but seems to be ignored at this time in 1981. And we're going to discuss why the L.A. County Sheriff's Department reopens this case because they now come to believe that there was more to this than accidental drowning. Yeah. So we'll do that on part two. All right. So that's what we have for you tonight on the business. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. We have a Facebook page. And if you're curious or interested and would like to join, send a request. But in the meantime, if you have a place that you would someday like to see where their dark corners are or have a mystery or unsolved murder that just seems to have so much conflicting information that you would like for us to delve into and discuss, send me an email at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. Final thoughts, husband Jeff. Very fishy. The whole story is very fishy. Yes. All right. So until next time, please remember only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why we hope to meet you where the dark corners are. It's got James Dean and Sal Manello.